And um, as Tim said, um, we've this term been um, just following through the Ten Commandments, and we reached the finale this morning of um, You Shall Not Covet. But we're going to start by just looking at a bit of a kind of commandment wrap-up of what's been going on this term, and then we'll look specifically at um, You Shall Not Covet. And in that vein, I thought it would be helpful to read the the whole section together. So we're going to go chapter 5, verses 1 to 22. So um, do dig in. That's page 175. So, starting at verse 1. Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. And just stop there for a second in verse 3. With all of us who are alive here today. And that's alluding to the eternal nature of God's word and to his relational character, which is something that we've been picking up throughout this series. Say so then, verse 4. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God. Let's just stop there for a moment. Verse 6. I am the Lord your God. So as we began this series, we were bending into the name of God. I am the transcendent, eternal reality of the fact that he is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I am the Lord your God. The Lord your God. The relational aspect of God, that he is here amongst us, that he's a relational God, that he draws close. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Observe the Sabbath, speaking to the justice of God there his heart for um, those who are the least, the last and the lost, for the servants, for his people who rescued out of slavery in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. 
Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long, and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And the final commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire. And just note that word desire there. The first and only time it's used in the Ten Commandments. It's about the heart. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is eternal, true, living and active. And as we bend into it this morning, in these few moments that we have together, would your Holy Spirit convict us afresh inspire us afresh and change us more into your likeness for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. So what's the, what's the big picture? Well, um, as we've been saying, these commands were given to Israel as they're sort of coming out of slavery and they're 40 years of wandering in the desert and they're on the plains of Moab and they're about to enter the promised land. And the Lord gives them commands as a way of saying, actually, this is how you will live well, both personally and corporately, once you're a people in the land. And so we fast forward to our day, to 2018, almost 2019. Um, and they're as true and relevant as they were all those thousands of years ago, because human nature doesn't change. Fundamentally, we're still, like the ancient Israelites, we're all those people made in the image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these commands are for our freedom and our flourishing. What we've been saying again and again during this series is, this isn't a bunch of you shall not. This is you shall be free. Actually, I'm God, and I'm the potter. I mean, God is not me. He's the potter, and we're the clay. And he knows how he's made and formed us. And so when we live according to his word, this word that's deeply theological and spiritual, but also deeply practical, we flourish. We do well in the land on this earth. And we can feel in this text, actually, it's the eternal word of God, isn't it? So verse 3, it's a covenant with all here today. It's not just about the ancestors. It's not just about those who have gone before Israel. It's about Israel right there in that moment. And it's about us right now in this moment. And then at the end, the bookend of verse 22, and he added nothing more. God added nothing more to his eternal relational word. And because they're so practical and because it's about how we're made, all the commands are kind of interlinked. You can probably feel if you've been um, sort of tracing through this series that it builds on itself. 
And there is an interlinked nature to what is being said, to what the Lord is speaking to us through Moses. Um, You shall not cover. Lots of threads that are quite similar to you shall not steal. So it's the eternal word of God. It's interlinked. It's you shall be free. And because the commands speak to us, to the very core of our nature, they start and they end with a relational reality and they start and they end with unity because each of us was created in the image of the living God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who is eternally relational. So we're eternally relational and we're made for relationship with God, but we're made for relationship with each other. And so verse three, you all, relational reality. The final command is all about your neighbor. Verse 21, your neighbor. They're relational and they speak to a we, not a me, because that's the way that the Lord has made us. So do not cover. Why on earth culminate, end, use do not cover as the grand finale of the Ten Commandments? And it's because it's about the heart. So we started in the big, big macro narrative of humanity's relationship with God. Commands one to three are all about, you shall have no gods before me. You shall not misuse my name. They're about our worship, our relationship with God. And then God filters down in that relationship to our personal desire. And so we end in command 10, which is all about the heart, all about our personal desires. Verse 21, you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, male or female servants, ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And scripture is so, so clear that we need to get our hearts right before God, that we need to keep our hearts right before God, before other people. Um, Proverbs, right nestling in Proverbs is this verse, Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We guard our hearts because everything we do flows from it. And that's what the commands are getting at. That actually when our hearts are captivated by God, that's when we walk well on this earth and for his kingdom. If you've been a Christian for a while, you're probably aware that you can't really talk anyone into Christianity. But actually you can watch someone's heart get captivated by God and see their lives changed. Um, I just think of some of my friends who've come to faith over the years, and you know, one of my best friends, I probably spent, we first got to know each other when we were 11, so I must have spent about 17 years around her, being a Christian, chatting to her about faith at various points, not chatting to her about faith when I wasn't a Christian for a few years, those sorts of things. Um, And then suddenly, when we were living in totally different cities, she phoned me up at the age of about 28, and I thought she was joking, she was like, Liz, I need to come and see you. Um, I've become a Christian. And I was like, what? Um, And she came to visit me at church. It was when I worked at St. Paul's Hammersmith. And we sat in the corner. 
and I just prayed for her and she was filled with the spirit and it was just an extraordinary moment and her heart was captivated by God and then you know I didn't give her 10 points on Christianity or something like that but as her heart was captivated by God things just changed so that her, her walk and her life came into line with God's word um, she at that stage was living with her boyfriend in Reading so she moved onto the sofa then she moved out of the flat um, then she realized she wasn't going to become a Christian so she just felt slowly that it was probably right to, to end that relationship then she moved to London then she started tithing I hadn't even talked to her about tithing you know and stuff was just happening because God was captivating her heart Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And verse 21, you shall not set your desire, your heart, on your neighbor's property, essentially, is what it's saying. And when we, um, when we hit Matthew, and we hit the person of Jesus, Jesus comes and he says in Matthew 5, have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And as Jesus fulfills the law again and again, especially represented in um, Matthew 5, um, 3 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we see that this stuff is about the heart. So Jesus says, actually, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21 which is speaking into this command of do not covet. Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's about the heart. And so the first challenge this morning is, what do you long for? Where's your treasure? Are you longing for these heavenly riches that Jesus, that these commands are pointing to? Or is earthly riches kind of nudging at you a bit more, especially at Christmas time? Very easy, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So do not cover. Do not cover. What on earth is coveting? We all do it, don't we? Um, I'm sure that there probably isn't a day, if not a week, that doesn't go by that I'm not like, oh, I like your shoes, or something like that. Um, don't know what Tim's is. I like your climbing gear, or something like that. <laughs> um, we all do it. And, and in one sense, in that initial moment, there's probably nothing wrong. But the point is, it's what it leads to. Because society right now tells us that the way that we can be happy is by getting more stuff. And this kind of longing for stuff all the time and maybe coveting a bit and being a bit jealous and everything. Actually, if we can just get that stuff, that's going to satisfy, that's going to make us happy. But we know that it doesn't. We know that it doesn't. And so actually a definition of coveting is that coveting is searching for an end goal that isn't there. Because our end goal in coveting is personal happiness, isn't it? And that end goal is not there. In Israelite times, it was, it was your neighbor's ox or donkey, male or female servant, house or land. 
today. Probably a house, land, car, wardrobe, holiday, all of that. But that end goal cannot, cannot satisfy you. And then the gospel comes in and Jesus breaks right into that. And says, actually, no, there's a different end goal. Do not covet because it's going to be toxic to your heart. And it's going to be toxic to your life and your relationships with each other and your relationship with God. But, Matthew 6, set your sights on heavenly riches, on the things of heaven. So earth grows strangely dim. And Matthew 22, which we'll look at in a moment, love God and love your neighbor. Made for a relationship with God, made for a relationship with each other. And when we get those things right, with the eyes of our heart set on the things of heaven, set on heavenly riches. That, that's the end goal. That's the joy that's abundant that will be fulfilled in a new creation ultimately, but that we can know right now. That's why I do not cover. So what, what does coveting, what does it do? Quickly. I think it's sort of threefold. First thing it breeds a discontent. Um, can you remember everything you got last Christmas? Can you remember anything? I can't remember anything. I actually can't. This is awful. I mean, if that tells us that stuff and desiring loads of stuff doesn't satisfy, then nothing else does. Um, I love what J. John says about this. Um, and J. John's a British evangelist, um, if you haven't come across him. He just says, we find it almost impossible to be content with what we are and what we have. We want more, yet the paradox is, the more we get, the more we want. That's true, isn't it? Or Nietzsche, that glorious enlightenment philosopher who got it very wrong when he said God is dead. But he, I think he has something when he says this. We grow weary of those things we most desire. And, and I know that that's true in my own life. I'm preaching to myself here. But that's why the law says do not cover, because coveting brings no permanence. And material desire ultimately brings, it brings no steadfast satisfaction. It, it can't, it's kind of empty. And then coveting also brings a kind of disunity. Because if we're made for each other and we're made for a relationship with each other, if we find ourselves constantly wanting something that the other person has, how can we have a good relationship with each other? So coveting breeds discontent, disunity. And it breeds a kind of disquiet and a misdirection of your heart. Each and every one of us is made to worship. That's part of human nature. And for those of us who are Christians, we know that we do that in worship and adoration of the living God. And that's the right direction of our hearts. That's the, you shall have no other gods before me, of command one. But everyone who walks the face of this earth worships um, and there was a chap called David Foster Wallace, who is a total atheist, a philosopher and all of that. Um, but he just says this, 
which is slightly depressing. We'll get to the upbeat stuff in a moment. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everyone worships. We all worship. We all have a heart. We're all told to guard our heart. And we're all exhorted to direct our heart towards the living God. You shall have no other gods before me. And so that's the second challenge. Actually, what are we worshipping? Which direction is our heart set in? Is it set on God things? Or is it set on earth things? And do we need to use some time this morning, maybe Wednesday afternoon, Thursday morning, to just reset our hearts on the things of the Lord? So discontent, disunity, and disquiet. But what's the upbeat stuff? What's the good stuff? The point of this command, as we said, as God said, is you're going to be free. This is about your flourishing. And Jesus comes right in in Matthew 22 and tells us what that flourishing is about. Actually, do not covet because the greatest commandments are these. Someone comes to um, Jesus in Matthew 22 and asks, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That's the first thing, guys. Relationship with the living God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On all these commands hang the law and the prophets. Love God. Love your neighbor. Do not covet. And then back to Matthew 6. Set your heart on heavenly treasure. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what what is heavenly treasure? Well, ultimately, guys, there's only one thing that's going into eternity with us. And that's other people. You're not going to take your house. You're not going to take your car. But you can take other people. And all our treasure, all our heavenly treasure is relational. It's about relationship with God and relationship with each other. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 has this beautiful image of us as Christians having dual sight. So that the eyes of our heart are set on the things of heaven, on heavenly realities, on the kingdom of God. But our physical eyes are set on earthly realities. So we're so, so aware of what is going on around us and the point in history that God's put us in and the people that he surrounded us with. But we're fueled by the eyes of our heart, which are set on things above so that we've run this race well. And our eyes store up, our hearts store up, our minds store up treasure in heaven, other people. 
Um, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Bit of truth there, isn't it? Everything is relational. God and other people. But how? Last five minutes. How do we do this stuff? Um, first of all, focus on relationships, not things. Um, it suddenly occurred to me um, about, maybe about a year ago, um, I looked at my finances and I thought, right, what am I spending my money on? Am I primarily spending my money on like stuff? Or am I primarily spending my money on things that facilitate relationships? So, you know, meeting up with friends, coffee and dinner, train tickets to visit friends. Prioritize in whatever way works in your life, in the stage of life that the Lord's put you in right now. Prioritize relationships and people over stuff. And perhaps that's a challenge for us at this moment, just before Christmas. Actually, what's our priority this Christmas? People or presence? Prioritize relationships, not things. Um, give generously. Let's give generously with our time, with our money. Let's get involved in church. Let's be involved in the lives of other people. Something that is just so encouraging to me and to Tim and to the rest of the staff team is how involved this congregation is. Whether it's the sort of pre-glass door drinks um, here on a Tuesday evening with the guys who are homeless or whether it's the worship team or the children's team or whatever ideas will spin out. Giving generously of our time and our money. Our culture is so fast-paced, isn't it? And it gives us no time to stop and reflect. So perhaps a New Year's resolution could be, I'm going to build in some time to stop and to reflect regularly. And just ask yourselves these sorts of questions. What do I think about most? What do I talk about most? What do I invest most of my time and my energy in or on? Asking ourselves those sorts of questions, giving ourselves time to reflect, that reorientates our hearts, that guards our hearts, that allows that they are a wellspring of life that is for the kingdom of God and for other people. And ultimately, there's this little quote, The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener when you water it. (laughs) And it is. So actually what we're called to do to flourish in this command, in all of the commands, is to water our God life, is to water the way that we were made. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener when we water it. And so we water it by spending time in community like this. We water it by spending time before God. We water it by getting active and involved. We water it by being reflective people who stop in the midst of the busyness of life and think, okay, what's my thought life like? What's my active life like? Am I guarding my heart? And when God and his word and his commands are the central axes of our life, on which everything else hangs. We prosper 
for the kingdom of God. We don't prosper in the way the world would say we should prosper, but we prosper in the way that God would say we become more the people he had in mind, more that son and daughter of the king, more our new creation reality. And we affect the world around us for good. So be free. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Do not covet. Set your desire on the things of God. Set your desire on the flourishing of your neighbor. And it will be well with your soul. Amen. I think I'll hand over to Tim. Is that all right? Just got a few moments before the kids come back. Lydia, thank you so much. Let's just in this space digest. We talk often about um, feeding on God's word as we've just taken communion earlier. And now as Lydia has just helped us to, to sit in the heart behind this passage, these commands. To feed on God, to be satisfied by him. And in this frantic time, this busy period, let's hold silence. And allow ourselves to be fed by God the grass of our life would be watered by him.